Thanks for listening to the Goop Podcast. When you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You do? Yeah. (laughs) Did you hear about that? (laughs) I didn't find the one. I found someone I respected and we made it the one. In the sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic. Nothing in itself is addictive on the one hand. On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled. I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Here we go. Chelsea Handler needs no introduction, but here's one anyway. She's a comedian, activist, and a New York Times bestselling author. She's also one of my dear friends. Today, Chelsea and I talk about intimacy and vulnerability, having the courage to speak out and learning to be okay with being uncomfortable. We talk about throwing away old behaviors that don't serve us, why life is more interesting when we are able to shift our perspectives, and how we can have deeper, better conversations. We also talk about Chelsea's latest book, Life Will Be the Death of Me, her work in racial justice, her return to stand-up comedy, and what it's like building a cannabis brand. What we'll learn from Chelsea today is that self-discovery is a never-ending road. But when we really do the work, we are enriching our own lives as well as the world. As Chelsea puts it, we're never fully cooked. We all have our trauma, but it's important to really respect the people's traumas that we know the least about. Let's get right to my chat with Chelsea Handler. Thank you for having me, Esther. And Chelsea calls me by my Hebrew name, Esther. (laughs) So I guess, you know, I guess where I would love to start, I mean, I want to talk about your book because it's so funny that people think of you so much as a, as a comedian, because you really are like a spiritual teacher in the way that you write, especially in this last book, the depth of your vulnerability and your accountability and your lack of binary thinking around how people are is so inspiring and so moving. Thank you. So I want to get to, I want to get to life will be the death of me because it's amazing. But you know, I, I, I have to start because I have to start with white privilege and your Netflix show. And because this is something that you started to address months and months or years ago, really. And the Netflix special was kind of my first eye-opening experience in terms of having to reconcile what white privilege is and how we all have participated in it, most of us unwittingly or unknowingly. So I wanted to ask you, why has this been such a passion for you to dismantle white privilege? Like connect those dots for me. How did you start thinking about this? Because for so many of us, it comes, it's such a blind spot. I think when I started, when I finally went to go see a therapist for the first time in my adult life with the serious intention of fixing some things, I 
became so self-aware, he gave me the gift of self-awareness where I was able to look at myself and realize that I was so busy with my own head, so far up my own butt, that I wasn't looking around. I was concerned with my family and my group of friends and my this and my show or my, my house. Or It wasn't a collective consciousness. It wasn't about society or you know the, all of humanity. It was about you know self-interest and and I realized oh that's the way I've been raised and what is it about the way I've been raised and then I started to ask questions like well how were other people raised you know how I the first time I went to like I was around black people was in high school when I went to go live with my brother and I was like oh this is culture you know I was like this is exciting this is culture I didn't have any black people growing up so I dove in head first to that because it was exciting and it was new like the privilege of that alone that I could just dive into somebody else's culture and then when I was bored come back to my white privilege never dawned on me you know all of these like nuances throughout our lives I think we're we all are wrapped up in our own things. I don't even know how to have children and I became, you know, that self-involved. You know, I didn't have, it wasn't like, yeah. it, it, when you have children, you at least have an excuse, but you can become immersed in that and wanting to protect them. And you find yourself not looking outside that circle. So why did that, like, um, what chord did it strike to the to the point that you thought, I need to make a television special about white privilege? I think because I just, I've gotten away with so much, you know, murder in my career. I've always gotten away with whatever I want to do and whenever I want to do it. And I was like, what? this is weird. Why isn't anybody else acting like this? You know, everybody's so scared and every, and I just, I just started to ask deeper questions. Like, would a black woman have been able to have a show like I did? Would she have been able to tell everybody off and tell celebrities how stupid they were? Would she have gotten away with that? You know, and I just started to look around at my own privilege. And when it, when I really assessed the situation, I was like, oh, I had a documentary left to do with Netflix and I wanted to do it about something I was passionate about. And I was like, oh, my God, what, how many white people must have these same questions? Like, what is the question to ask? How do you get okay with making yourself feel uncomfortable or be uncomfortable and having people tell you you're wrong, your opinions are wrong and redirect your line of thinking, you know, or just challenge your thinking. Most people aren't interested in doing. Yeah. And so I thought if anything, we could show people like a roadmap of how to have these conversations. And it was for white people like myself that were curious about the topic. And you, Put, you know, there were some very uncomfortable conversations and almost confrontations, right? I mean, you you, yeah. you were in conversations that were hard on you in the best way. And I think, you know, you opened yourself up for that, but then you, just by virtue of what the architecture of the show was, but then you really created that space to be challenged and which was amazing. So few people do that? Well, it's just so easy to get defensive. Like on the first day of the set, on the first day of shooting, Netflix called and said I had to go to racial sensitivity classes and sexual harassment training. <laughs> and I was like, again? I'm like, you guys have got to be kidding me. And I'm like, what? And I had gone to that poetry jam session and this woman had gotten up and sang, this black woman, and I went around to hug her. And when we, when we hugged her, I like tapped her on the butt. And as soon as I did it, she was just like, 
and I was like, oh, hey, sister, like we're sisters. Like that's how I greet people I love is like smack them on the ass. I thought the me, I'm like the Me Too movement applied to men, but not women. We're not doing anything wrong. And I was like, and she got really upset and I had to call her and I was like, and I was defensive. And I remember going, but that wasn't, she just said, you don't know my history. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know that black women have been defined by their hair and their asses since the beginning of time. You have no right to touch my body. And I was like, oh, okay, you're right. Now I get it. I have no right to touch your body, you know? So that film was a learning. I mean, a, a lot of people are gonna listen to this and be like, don't you know not to touch people? But no, the answer is I don't. And now I do know, you know? So now I only touch my relatives inappropriately. And me. Yeah, well, obviously. And your dogs. Yeah, well, they had it coming. True. I wanna talk, I wanna ask you more about this capacity you have for teaching through making other people uncomfortable, which I think is a beautiful attribute and really the only way that any of us can learn anything, right? We have to stretch our capacity to understand. Having my perspective shift like consistently is also really important to me. You know, I don't want to be stuck in my opinions. No, I don't either. And I think that's one of the ways that we stop growing and you know, to, to become mired in rightness, righteousness, like I'm, I'm right. Like I've come to this conclusion and I know I'm right. Right. It's so boring. <laughs> no, it's so boring and it's so ego-based. Right. Like once you're able to identify when your ego is at play and in this business, listen, we have to deal with our egos. It's going to be part of the business. But once you're able to separate that, especially on this subject matter, it has nothing to do with ego. It has to do with using your platform for the best way you know how. And I feel like I can speak to this conversation because I've been having it for a long time, but I also don't want to over outwear my welcome. I know this isn't about me, but it's right. about change. And that's one of the beautiful things that I think we're seeing, you know, in this time that's born out of COVID. Like, look at the change that's been happening, you know, in the last couple of weeks, look what these protests have amounted to. This is a beautiful time in history. Yeah. And, you know, we're coming I mean, there's dark things happening, but there's so much brightness. And it's nice to be reminded of this, like the victories, like yesterday in the Supreme Court, you know, we get news like that and they're like, oh, things are going in the right direction. They're just not going at the pace we want them to. Right. And I think that there's, you know, I think that there's a certain relenting that happens when things don't happen in a way that we can easily understand or on our time frame. That's also a really important part of the process. And I think, you know, when, I mean, you had this huge wake up call when Trump was elected. I mean, I was really worried about you for a minute there. Yeah, I got that message. I got the message that everybody was like, whoa, people saw me coming and they're like, oh, fuck. You know, I had like veins. I was going to the airport, like the lounges at the airport, going straight to the Fox News section and just ripping people apart. I just go and could, I'd be like, you fucking racist. I mean, that's <laughs> the level I was at after the election. I had my veins throbbing out of my neck. I'd start fights with people if I, they looked Republican. And I was like, hey, so I was out of hand. <laughs> And that's when I knew, you know, that was like the inception of this book and what my stand-up show is going to be, my special for HBO, is it was my first deep look at myself, at my entitled behavior, my spoiled brat-like behavior, and me losing touch with being grounded. I wasn't grounded anymore, and I wasn't present ever for like, you know, there were like a period of time where I was so hyper-focused 
on what was happening with Trump and the administration that I couldn't even, you know, I wasn't good for anything else. And I was like, okay, if it became unmanageable. And that's when I was like, all right, I want to like take a year and really like find out what my problem is. <laughs> right. And was any of that, this might be a radical question, but was any part of that trying to understand the ideology of the other side that riled you up so much? Yeah, totally. That was exactly what I went. I mean, I went because I had anger, but I also had decided I was going to do this like cross country college speaking tour in conservative parts of the country to learn how something like this happened. Because I was like, well, okay, if I'm an elitist, then let me go not be an elitist and find out what, what I'm talking about and get out of my Hollywood bubble that everyone, you know, accuses everybody with opinion an opinion in Hollywood to be in. And, you know, and, I, and they were right. I was in a bubble. I didn't understand what was going on. And that's what, what the purpose of that tour was. And I learned a lot, but the purpose of therapy was to be able to go on that tour and not scream and yell when I was that's talking so to somebody. Like, I can't even remember what that girl's name is, but you know, these Republican right. right-wing girls. Were you able to understand their perspective? Like, did you, was there any kind of softening around how, these people are are perceiving things or like i'm curious what the impact of that was on you the impact is that yeah people don't have the same experiences that you do people don't have the same advantages that you do some people are born in parts of the country and they don't get out of that part of the country and they only see that line of thinking their entire life they're not exposed to any other line of thinking so you know they're and they and they have so you know when white people hear white privilege and they're like well i'm poor and i'm working three jobs what privilege is this it's like okay, well, yeah, that's not a good situation either. But if you were a black person and you were working three jobs, you would be even at more of a disadvantage than you are now. You know, it's not about like, well, I'm suffering too. We're all suffering. Everyone's suffering for some reason. You know, we all have our trauma, but it's important to really respect the people's traumas that we know the least about. And it's important to understand that if there is, if there, if, if people are being traumatized because of the color of their skin, and that is putting them at an immediate disadvantage, whether it's with the police or in the workplace or anything, like that's something as white people that we have to actively cultivate an understanding for that because we've been raised under the assumption that, oh yeah, I mean, isn't this, we're the baseline and it's just, it's, so blind and it's so wrong. Well, it's also so blind. And I know you guys do this, you work with this kind of stuff a lot, but I think we're now that there's so much science and data behind the idea of intergenerational trauma. Like yes. you don't have to have been a slave to understand what oppression means and to still feel it. You just have to have it in your heritage and it's in your system. Like it's in your DNA and we have to respect that trauma lives in people's DNA. And yeah, we have major, major work to do with, you know, the racial divide in this country. Did you feel like you were able to create a dialectic with some of these people that believed so differently to you? Did you rub off on them at all? Did they rub off on you at all? I learned how to have a conversation without getting angry and without and understanding and saying, this is a person, this is a person, this is like a soul without being like anyone who votes for Trump is the enemy. It's like, no, no, that's not the case. I still don't feel that way. And I'm glad that he, because I used to have strong views like that. And now I just realize people lose their way or people aren't educated. You know, I think it all comes back to education 
And that's not something that should be used to weaponize, you know, politics. It's like education should be good. We should all want everybody to get one. But yeah, you know, some people, when they see new information, they do change their minds. So I'm not going to give up on people that, you know, that I think like anymore. I've seen too many people like end up doing the right thing that weren't on the right side of things. So I have hope. I think that, you know, they're part of this divide is coming from the fact that there are people who consider regard themselves as deeply, deeply religious people. And those, those beliefs align with a, 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 an infrastructure that doesn't align with inclusion sometimes. And so not sometimes all the time. I mean, no, I know people are changing their companies and I know you do great work at that and everyone is being held accountable now. So they, you know, so everyone's going to join forces, but it's still, you know, it's still not anywhere near where it needs to be. Like we all just have to be doing so much hard work. My friend, when the protests were happening, she's just like, I'm just so exhausted. I'm so exhausted. And I'm like, yeah, can you imagine how black people feel? And she's like, you, you can't talk to me like that. And I was like, I'm going to. Like, <laughs> sorry, especially this week, I will talk to you that way. Oh, my God. So let's, let's talk a little bit about, like, in the book, you write so beautifully about your parents. And the reason why I love it so much and I find it so poetic is because you, you don't canonize them. You don't you know, they're like, you, you treat them with so much humanity and love and you show everybody in your family with, in all of their positivity and all of their negativity. And it made me realize like, God, we're so easy to characterize, characterize or categorize someone as, you know, oh, this, this is this kind of mother, or this is this kind of asshole father. Is this process of truly embracing all aspects of a person, is, did that come from like, tell, well, tell me a little bit about how you arrived there. Like, how did you, how did you articulate that? I think I, I think I realized I had heavy judgment. Like I was throwing heavy judgment around and I wasn't being judgmental of myself. I was like in the clear, you know, like I was right and everybody else was wrong. And then I made a living also doing that. Like I was getting paid to do that. So it became kind of my currency. So people expected it from me. And then it became like my permanent personality. And I'm like, (laughs) wait, what the fuck is happening here? But it is my personality, you know, but I needed to come at it from a kinder viewpoint. I think what I wanted was to be less judgmental and to be more patient. And Dan, my therapist, who I talk about in the book, gave me the gift of sitting still. Like he taught me how to sit still. He taught me how to like sit and meditate and think and reflect and that not everything has to be 60 miles an hour. Not everything has to be you fumbling with your keys and, you know, dropping this and it just can go more slowly than that. And you can enjoy life and like actually look at the trees and enjoy nature and things that I always thought were like, yeah, I'll get there when I'm older. Well, guess what? I'm here (laughs) and I'm enjoying it. So it's, so with that work in trying to be less judgmental, he made me realize like about people and not putting them in boxes. It's like, everybody is fluid, you know, everybody has their highs and their lows and you, you wouldn't want to be judged on your worst behavior. I know I wouldn't. And so why would you ever judge another person on their darkest day or their most trying time in their relationship? It's just a very unfair thing to do. And then 
once I was able to adapt that, I think Dan, at one point, my psychiatrist was like, listen, you're not supposed to be attracted to everybody. <laughs> like, that's not the point. He's like, you just have to understand that every person deserves the same amount of respect. I was like, but you know, sometimes if I see a belt I don't like or a pair of shoes, I'm like, I can just, he's like, no, Chelsea, not everybody is there for you. Like, people have their own lives. I'm like, okay, okay, got it, thank you. <laughs> Yeah, but I think I think it just it's a skill that we have to learn, right? To understand that we're all equal parts, light and dark. We're not all one thing or all another. And to have tolerance for other people and their, you know, good qualities, their bad qualities. I mean, it, I think it goes along with maturity as well, but some people really do stick in their judgmental. Yeah, Mary, Mary McCormick, who you know, who's my best friend, is always like, not everybody deserves your truth, okay? Like, you don't have to be truthful. Save your truth for me and Michael. Like, just keep it for us. And, you know, and she has a point. You know, not everybody does deserve it, but that's not the point. The point is to be kind with it. Like, it's not necessary always to insert yourself. Like, I always thought if I had thoughts, I needed to share them. Now I know, you know, I do feel much more mature to that point. I, now I know it's like, it's not my place always to talk and to let other people talk. But and that said, you know, you are a force for change. And like, when you talk sometimes, if it's incendiary or you make somebody uncomfortable with your truth, like you could actually be having an impact like that could manifest later in their life in some way. So I think people do deserve your truth. I mean, I think I don't want you to exhaust yourself, but <laughs> no, don't worry. I, I have a hard time. I have a hard time getting tired of telling the truth. So it's not an issue. We'll get right back to the chat. Today, I want to tell you a little bit about G-Label, which is our eponymous apparel line that we make at Goop. I wanted to make G-Label because I was looking for very high quality clothing, things that were super easy to wear and solve problems for women like me, busy working moms. We started making the pieces a couple of years ago to be staples in our wardrobes, things that we would never throw away, things that would never go out of style. Always buy now, wear now. Goop label is Italian made. It just works. It's easy, it's beautiful. We really wanted to take our customer on a shared journey throughout every aspect of her life. So in the morning, going on the school run, going to work, meeting, soccer games, and into the evening. It's a very effortless approach to style. It's timeless, it's modern. There's always a little edge or some cool detail. I basically tried to make clothes that would work for any occasion, but were as comfortable as wearing pajamas. It's just like a modern uniform for every day. I would love to offer 15% off all G-Label purchases with the code GLABEL15 so that you can give it a try. Head over to goop.com slash glabel to shop. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. I wanted to ask you something that we just were talking on before I moved on to the next thing, which was... Judgment, about judgment, about... Mm -hmm. um, 
oh, why do I have like menopause brain? And I can't remember when I should. Here, I'll tell you something. I'll tell you something. I used to, what I used to do in relationships is I used to cut people off if they did one thing. Like if they did one thing I didn't like, I would just be like, that's it. I'm done. Which is so selfish. Like it's like so unfair to that person. So they get no second chance. They get, I mean, you know, and I never had it, you know, I had it, had it done to me probably since like, you know, I was in school as a young child. And then it realized like how cruel that can be, you know, and I've done that to a lot of people in my life. But so I that think was one thing I really wanted to examine because I was like, how do I end a relationship in a normal way? And Dan was even able to relate that back to my brother's death. He goes, you're used to having somebody here one day and the way they say goodbye is to be gone the next day. So the way you think you need to end relationships is like that, black and white. He's like, you don't have to say goodbye to somebody if they're still here. And so it was like I had this thing stuck from when I was nine-year-old, you know, little girl in my brain that hadn't matured past that. Mm -hmm. And so that was a huge thing that I realized through therapy is that I shut relationships. And now, you know, I haven't done that since. I was like, oh, God, do I have to call all these people? Is this like AA? He's like, no, you don't have to call everybody. He goes, or anybody. He goes, you just have to not behave that way ever again and not shut somebody out. And well, I think like when I hear you, and now I remembered what I was going to say, but when I hear you talk about that too, that seems like a manifestation of fear of intimacy. You know, it's like, you don't like somebody's belt or somebody's shoes. That's like, oh, they might be getting a little bit in there. And like, right. Yeah. Now you can just say you're a nerd. Like I would never date someone who wears, you know, Mephisto shoes or whatever the case may be. (laughs) And I think in a way that touches back to what you, what you were talking about earlier, which was this busyness that you cultivate or that one cultivates. Like, I always think if we're this busy and this overburdened and we have this many responsibilities and we're taking care of this, that, and the other, and we're working and whatever, and we're not stopping to breathe and we're not stopping to walk through nature. I think oftentimes it's because we don't want to sit with whatever unresolved pain is underneath all that busyness. Yeah. And the more that we're sublimating that pain, the less capable of real intimacy we are of having, because we're definitely not going to go out with somebody and let them in. If there's all this pain underneath the surface and then like, then their belt is really awful and we could never date somebody who has a belt like that. So. Right. Right. It's all about intimacy. It was totally about about that for sure. So how are you? What? Sorry. I I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, no. No. Interrupt. You're a talk show host now. Oh my God, I took your job, job. I know. So if you know you have a fear of intimacy and then you're you're doing work with Dan, who's apparently an unbelievable therapist, how do you start to work on that so that you can be vulnerable and you can truly find intimacy? I mean, I've been working on it. You know, it's just about changing your habits and about rehabituating. It's about rehabituating my habits. You know, it's really easy to pick up a new habit. You know, now I've like spent two years. I haven't woken up two mornings in a row and not meditated for the last two years. That's a habit I never had. It's so easy to make, like create new healthy habits. So now with men and with guys I'm talking to, it's just like very, there's no child, like the childlike behavior, I think, to a degree was definitely put to bed. The yeah. kind of toddler-esque, attention-seeking, like in a relationship you have to prove to me, you love me the most. I think I put all that away, I hope, we'll see. We'll see when I start dating Andrew Cuomo. 
But I, I mean, but you know, it's always, it's not, ne you're never fully cooked. You're never fully done. It's always like this, you know, word journey that I can't stand. And I'm now saying it is this long road of like self-discovery. And there's something about being in your forties. It's called a midlife crisis for a reason. Like we, we all have them because it's called that because it's really common, you know, and some have worse and some have minor ones, but we all have a reckoning when we turn 40 and we're like, what the fuck am I putting out into the world? Do you feel like you've ever allowed yourself to be fully unguarded in an intimate relationship, like in a romantic relationship? Yes, yes, I have. When I was younger, definitely. I think I, you know, I think that's the thing. Like there was a period where I was really in my own shoes. And then right. there was a period where I flew off the handle, you know? And so you have to be very aware to even catch that because you don't want to get any further than you've already gone. Did it correlate um, with fame? I was going to say it correlated with Andre Belange, but yeah, no, it correlated with fame. I'm sure there's a correlation with fame. I was like, I think that was my Andre Belange was the beginning of my, anyway, uh, no, uh, I hope Andre's well. Yeah, it had to do with fame. It just had to do with, you know, my whole childhood, my, my being spoiled. I was the youngest of six, and I just kind of demanded my way through life and got away with it. And it wasn't until I did take a look and say, wait, how did my life has never really been that difficult? Like, nothing has ever been a huge struggle. I've never been hungry. Like, you know, I've never not been able to pay my bills, even when I was a waitress and I was broke. Like, I could always call my parents or a brother or a sister. And so I just started to read a lot of black authors. And that also set me off into being like, oh my God, they need white allies. Like what are white people doing? That was also like the tip of the iceberg with the documentary. So the therapy was great for <laughs> multiple reasons. Seriously. Yeah. Talk to me about weed. So I love cannabis because A, it helped me. It was my gateway drug for meditation. Like it was the drug that allowed me to sit still and practice every day. Like even when I didn't know what I was doing and I'm like, I'm just thinking about, you know, the person I'm calling after this, I just stay stuck the course or stood the course. And I, and I really like, you know, that I can see the, the benefits of, and sorry, what was I just saying? Where did I go? About I cannabis. Oh, cannabis. Sorry. So cannabis was my gateway drug to meditation and through that it just kind of softened the edges and it allowed me to have more patience with people yeah. you know like to, especially people that I wasn't really that interested in or you know I have a real bad time having a poker face as you well know so if I'm like I go into a meeting and I take like you know microdose five milligram or two and a half milligram edible or a blueberry or a mint and you're like oh everything's just a little bit nicer and softer. And I think what has been missing for so many years, what is now available to us and this legalization of cannabis throughout the country is because there's this educative component that had been missing for since, you know, the prohibition of cannabis, which is what we just lived through. And now that you can look and say, oh, this is two and a half milligrams. It's just something to like sand down the edges. You're not taking a cookie that somebody baked for you, you know, at a ski resort. It's two separate situation. So I think the educative component really made me feel safe walking into the cannabis space and like building a brand, which I'm not releasing yet because of COVID and all of these things. But it's something I do feel passionately about and I give it to everyone in my life. How did you begin the process of educating yourself around cannabis? What kind of data were you looking at? 
I was consuming it, Esther. I was consuming oh, it. And then I was anecdotal like, data. I yeah, anecdotal data. And then I was trying every product that was out there. As we know, I have a high tolerance. So I was able to see what would be good for beginners and what would be good for, you know, intermediates and what kind of, you know, men feel really impassioned and emboldened in using cannabis and in the space of cannabis. And I want women to own that space too. Well, that's what's so great about you starting this this business. I don't think women feel comfortable oftentimes asking questions. I mean, it's the basis for Goop, right? Women women have a hard time asking questions from a place of like, I need help. I think we we think oh, we have to do we have to do thing by the, everything by the book. We have to do what's right and acceptable, and we have to take on all the burdens. So, asking questions around sexuality or ideology or cannabis or whatever sometimes or you know business stuff it can be uncomfortable for women intimidating for sure you know that better than anybody right you got to like kind of uh, yeah totally and you know now that women know we've gotten the message that we have to be on each other's team yes. you know i think that's another silver lining from the election women now know we have to stand together and support each other and that we're stronger together we didn't get that you message said the last best thing at in goop health when you said you don't have to, some, I'm paraphrasing, but you said, you know, you don't have to like- I know the line. It's Mary McCormick's line. Oh, you don't safe. have to be everybody's best, you don't have to be everybody's best friend, but you have to be everybody's sister. It's so beautiful. Yeah. And it's true. It's true. Yeah, anyway, sorry. Good. I interrupted. So you decided that you were going to create a business around like a female-friendly yeah, cannabis like an ent- like an entry for women to say to say come over here, you're safe here with me. I'm going to show you how to do this and how to do it safely and how to feel comfortable and com- and build your confidence, um, because it's going to make your life better, your quality of life better. Can you send some over here by any chance? Of course I can, sweetheart. It'll I'm not. Me. I've never been really like a cannabis. I know you're not a big cannabis user. No. No. Do you need it? Do you need something to sand down the edges? I mean, I do like to have a drink. Yeah. But I, but for some, I think I had like, I had a bad experience with cannabis when I was younger. And I basically had what you just described, like the cookie at a ski resort where I was incapacitated. Yeah. And so I never really gravitated back towards it that much. But I think... But you're my perfect customer. You're my target customer because exactly. that's exactly what it is. It's like people need to be reintroduced to the safety of cannabis and to understand how do you use cannabis. Cannabis doesn't use you. You know, I've taken an edible and thought I was at a movie theater and got up to leave the theater only to find out I was on an airplane. So I've been there, you know. I've been down that road. I think I was on that flight. <laughs> <laughs> you were. That was our morning flight from the Hamptons. (laughs) That was so funny. I took a Xanax to go back to sleep and Alec Kashishi is like, I started eating the food tray on the plane and Alec's like, stop it. You're not Xanax eating. Stop it. Go to sleep. Oh my God. So funny. And are you excited about starting a business? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's not, yeah, I'm excited always to learn and I'm excited about this space for women because there's so many female entrepreneurs in this category of like, you know, the marketplace that really need attention and they need a boost. And this is such a huge market for men and it's so dominated by men. So I really am wanting to hustle, you know? And so I've done a lot of due diligence that I've met and been to tons of grows. So I'm excited to learn more. I'm not excited to start a business per se. No, because, 
you know, it just sounds like scary, but it's something I feel passionately about. And I usually use that as my, you know, drive. So, so it'll work out. Yeah, (laughs) for sure. But I am going to send you a package with instructions just for lazy days when you want to see very mild stuff. Okay. Very mild. Like I don't want to be, okay. Microdosing. Okay. Okay. And when is it, do you know when it's coming out and what it's called or anything? I can't say the name of it yet. Sorry. No, and it's not, we, I don't have a date for its release yet. So. Okay. Great. So this is fruitful line (laughs) of questioning. (laughs) Um, So you're, so tell me about how you started posting naked on Instagram with books in your hand. Oh, I, because I really, you know how passionate I feel and passionately I, uh, I feel about books. I do. And I know you do as well. And I don't know. I mean, my new shots seemed to get the most attention. So I wanted people to start a book club. And I figured that was the way to do it while also covering my body up since everybody's already seen it so many times. We I'm going in reverse. It. I expose myself and then I cover up. <laughs> you have you've great boobs. So feel free to keep inspiring us <laughs> But the Get Lit with Chelsea, it's really funny. It's really Thank good. Thank you. Thank you. What have you read recently that you really love? Oh, I just read this book, I'll Be Right There, by King Suk, King Suk Shin and the South Korean writer, this beautiful book. I've been reading these South Korean writers lately because I read this book called Pachinko a few weeks ago, and it was so beautifully written. And then I read another book by that author and then this author, and I was like, oh, my God, there's something about their use of language. And it's just a love story between a brother like, and a sister relationship and two, two brother and sister relationships, the um, I'll Be Right There book. And it was just – it talks about, like, you know, they're dealing with the same oppression there from the Japanese that, you know, Mexicans are dealing with in our country from Americans. Right. So there's so many parallels, you know. The world is so different, yet we're all doing the same thing. So I've been reading a ton during quarantine. And – does that, I know it, it may be a weird correlation, but because you just eat up great literature, did you feel like that impacts your stand-up at all? Like that kind of language or does it open doors into other ways of thinking that impacts your stand-up? Because also your stand-up is so smart. Yeah, I think it does. As you get older, it does. You know, you realize the value of actually having differing, you know, differentiating experiences. Like if you keep going to the same well, you're getting the same water. So like, you know, I I don't read anything I know anything about. You know, I've read, just read a book about like neurosurgery just because I'd like to tap my, you know, I'd like to know a little bit about it, but not too much. But I think it's just, I'm always just trying to fill up. And yeah, I think as we get older, we start to, I retain more and more information now that I've been able to like attack my ADD through meditation and sit and be present for an entire hour straight through. Like that was a little bit harder for me a few years ago and now it's not. And so, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Did I answer your question? I don't know. Yeah, no, I'm just, I'm, I'm just, and I, I heard that you're going to go back to stand up, which is very. Yeah, exciting. sorry to circle circle it back. It makes my stand. Are you sure that's just a small microdose? I haven't had any marijuana today. <laughs> that's a lie. No, um, <laughs> it makes my stand up sharper. But this stand up is really reflective of the book. I wanted to put 
the emotion of the book on stage, but I wanted it to be funny from the beginning to the end and just have a pocket of emotion. You know that scene in Steel Magnolias where, where she's at the funeral and Julie Roberts is, she just passed away and she's crying. She's like, I just want to hit somebody. I want to hit somebody. And she's like, here, hit Lisa. And you go from that moment of being so emotionally bereft to just laughing hysterically. I'm like, oh, if you could do that in stand-up. And then I saw Hannah Gatsby do that in her stand-up special. And I was like, oh, I'm going to do that. So that's what this special is. So is, how different is it from, because I saw you when you performed your book, basically. I mean, you, is it, is it all new material around, around weaving through the book? Yeah, yeah. It's all stand. I mean, it's all material. I think I used that part of the tour that you saw where Leah Remini interviewed me after she had her fire water. She, oh, yeah, that was hilarious. Oh, that was so funny. She was, uh, I used that opportunity with like the storytelling to create the stand-up show. Like I realized halfway through that tour, I was like, oh, this is a one-woman show. I just didn't want to do stand-up in the beginning. So I just kind of came back full circle and I was like, I'm ready to do stand-up because I finally feel like I have something important right. to say. Because for a while you said you weren't going to do it. Yeah, I didn't feel like I was contributing anything. I was just like, it felt stale. And I, I was stale. I had just done so many tours back to back to back. And I just took the joy out of it, you know, and I wanted to bring the joy back to it. So when are you going to start that up? So I'm going to film that hopefully over the summer. I'm going to okay. film my stand-up special for HBO Max. And um, yeah, I'm hoping to have it out by the end of the, uh, before the end of the year. And then will you go on the road at yeah, all? Yeah, I, I just had a whole tour canceled because of COVID. So I was supposed to be touring this whole time. So yeah, we're all just waiting to see when things start to open up. But obviously, later than sooner in my, for what I'm going to do. But yeah, I'll go on tour again. I'm now into stand-up. And that's another thing that came out of therapy. I've come full circle back to the thing I thought I didn't want to ever do again. You know, I yeah. kept saying, I don't want to do, I don't want to do stand-up. I don't wanna, and I got to do it on my own terms and in a totally organic way. And that is meaningful too. Yeah, absolutely. So how have you been quarantining? Well, my sister and her three children invaded my house. They came down after the first two weeks of quarantine Amazing. and they moved in. So three adult children and their two dogs and they lived here for two months. So there was a lot of cannabis happening during those two months. I mean, there was a lot, because the first two weeks we treated like spring break, like vacation, we're all together. It's summertime, you know, pool, pizza making. And then after two weeks, I was like, okay, we're not, this is not vacation anymore. <laughs> this is real life and no one has anywhere to go. Like, so I was upstairs in my room, like a hostage most of the time, but luckily I have a beautiful balcony. So I would just be out there. But yeah, I shared a lot of cannabis with my niece and nephew, you know, coping mechanisms. None of them had lived together for this amount of time and since they were kids. So it was really, really fun. And also I'm glad they're gone. Were you surprised by anything that came up internally around, you know, living with your family for that long? Oh, yes. I was like, oh, like, for one, I mean, totally. I mean, the things I was thinking, like, you know, at one moment you feel totally confident in your relationship with your niece or nephew. And the next minute you're like, do they think I'm a loser? Like, do they think I'm lame? I'm like, wait, I'm supposed to be the cool one. And then you're second guessing, like, what you're saying. I was telling my friend about that. I'm like, I can't tell if my niece really likes me or not. And she's like, lay off the weed. I was like, yeah, maybe I'm getting carried away. Oh. <laughs> she's and like, your niece is isn't thinking about you at all. I'm like, you're right. <laughs> How old is your niece? 
She's 21. Uh, I have a 21-year-old and an 18-year-old and then a 24-year-old boy who was here. So they all are gone. They left this weekend. This is my free zone this wow. week, and I'm enjoying myself. That's good. How do you, how do you date during quarantine? What you sexually been- harass people online, you know, the old-fashioned way. I like it. Are you seeing anybody? I'm not, no. I'm not seeing anybody. I'm talking to a few different prospects, so we'll see where that leads me. I just yeah, get set up. And now they're going to all know about each other. Oh, well, good, good. <laughs> should, yeah, good. That's good. This is why I can't, this is why I'm terrible during interviews. Because I can just, or anything you ask me, I'm like, <laughs> terrible. No, that's why no one will date me. No, now it's going to be so good because you've done all this incredible work. And I think nobody tells us how much work we have to do on ourselves in order to have a successful, happy relationship. We think we're supposed to just sort of crash into something and it's going to be great. And it's like, unless you are ruthless with yourself about the areas that you have to heal, like you just, it's not going to happen. I know. And so many people don't have access to that. You know, so many people don't have access to that kind of therapy. We need to open up a blow dry bar for therapy, you know, for, for that. I actually just made an investment in a company that's really smart. That's doing group therapy and teletherapy and one-on-one therapy. And it's, it's a really good price point. It's for, you know, aimed towards millennials and it's really cool. But I I agree. I, I, I'm like you, I believe so much in therapy and it's hard to do it in a vacuum. You know, it's hard to do it without a sounding board and a teacher. And yeah, exactly. And what you said is so true. It's like, no one tells you the amount of work that has to go into making yourself okay. People think like, oh, I I don't have an issue. It's like, we all have issues. We don't even know about our issues. (laughs) So the more you can learn about yourself and the more self-aware you can become, it's like you're, you're doing a favor to the world. Yeah, absolutely. And that was, you know, for me, such a beautiful part of your book that you were able to be so open about that process, you know, and how important Dan has been in your life. And Because it's not, it's just not fun to know, you know, when you say you do the unpleasant work and you have to be ruthless with yourself, it's not fun to drive somewhere knowing that it's going to be painful. Like, you sit there and it's not like, you know, it's necessary work to do, but you're not looking forward to it. It feels like, okay, this is a means to an end. And when you finally get to a place where you can be real about your feelings and you're not, you don't have these like layers of defense up for me, you know, that was my issue. You start to realize like you've been missing out on a whole part of the world, you know, that there's so much goodness out there and there's so much benefit to being an optimistic, happy person. Like it bleeds over, you know, and you can help other people be happy too. That's so beautiful. Is. It's so nice to see you like your cynicism has waned and you found all of this beauty and optimism in the world. I love oh, it. Don't worry, I'm still a cynic. Don't worry, Mary's still my best friend. So I'll I don't know. I love stoned, therapized Chelsea. I have to oh, tell you. you. <laughs> I love you before, but I love you even more now. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I'm so happy to see you. I can't wait to see you in person. Cheers. Love you, Esther. Love you. Thank you for joining my chat with Chelsea Handler. I hope you'll pick up a copy of her new book, Life Will Be the Death of Me. That's a wrap on today's episode. 
If you have a second, please rate, review, and hit subscribe if you haven't already. Don't forget to share the Goop podcast with a friend. And in the meantime, for more, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.